So in my book, I talk about the three things that's the most important thing you, you can do to develop rapport. You can't develop rapport with a student. You will never have that student for more than a couple of weeks because that student doesn't connect and they're gone. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we are talking to Mike Grande, uh, who I think is a little bit of a known figure, especially in the Facebook groups community. Mike Grande is responsible for bringing us the awesome Rock Out Loud platform a couple years ago during the height of the pandemic. Uh, But Mike caught my eye uh, a couple weeks ago in that he is getting ready to publish a book. And the book's title really caught my eye From Teacher to Coach. And why you would never want to be a teacher. Which a lot of people are saying that's a really crappy title. (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you, you know, it's going to raise eyebrows, but I think that's what it takes to, to uh, to get eyeballs these days. And I'm probably going to borrow that title for the podcast. (laughs) And I hope you do. I do. I really hope you do. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, welcome back to the podcast. Typically, Nate's with me. couldn't make it today. So Mike and I are going to be talking about this idea of a teacher versus a coach. Uh, So Mike, I just want to jump right in and ask you a question. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about this book. How did you come to see the world in this way, the idea of teacher versus coach? So I went out to Rwanda last year, and I was actually working with this woman named Mary Fanaro. She was a woman who was run the Omni Peace Foundation, and she's opened up her own music schools in Rwanda. And long story short, it was like, hey, you know, let me help you out. If there's anything I could do, I'm a music you know, school owner, and I've been doing this for a while. If there's anything I can do, she's like, well, I know nothing about music. I love music, and I love kids, and I opened up this school in Rwanda. And yeah, sure, you can certainly help. So I gave her this like synopsis of what I do, and I'm like, we don't have teachers. We have coaches. And she stopped me right there. She said, you can't do that in Rwanda. And I said, I can't do what? She said, well, you can't describe these teachers as coaches because they're music school teachers. And that's the way they know it. That's their culture. And they're not going to get it. And she's like, I could tell you right now, you're a really excited guy from like Brooklyn, like this Italian guy with a lot of energy. So let's just go in and say they're teachers. And I was like, absolutely not. If you want to work with me, we're going to use the term coaches. So that was a big obstacle. So long story short, I fly down there and I present this pilot program on how to teach teachers to become coaches, music school coaches. And it was a pilot program to run across the the Ministry of Education for the country of Rwanda. So I sat there with 16 teachers converting them to coaches. And the second or third day I was there, I had to meet the Minister of Education in a meeting called Minaduk. That was the name of the place. And it was me, Mary, and uh, the higher-ups of the entire country to sit down and explain to them what I was doing. And um, they kind of got it. And they said, all right, I'm going to come and see your pilot program. So I'll watch you and I'll sit in the back while you do this, you know, this pilot program, converting teachers to coaches. I said, sure. So the entourage comes to this village. These escalates come into this little village in Rwanda. And for three hours, they watched a part of my presentation which was called thinking out of the box as a coach. And after three hours, the minister of education came up and said, you know what? The country of Rwanda, they need coaches. Our children need coaches. And that was it. So when, when that was all said and done and Mary looked at me with this smile, like, you know, not only did you convince me and I bought into the Kool-Aid, but when you went to the, the head of the country and the educational institutions of Rwanda and they said, you know, this guy's got some points here, 
that's what really solidified it. So when I came back, I was like, you know, this is not a cultural thing. When I teach teachers to become coaches, I was, it's always under, under my schools. And I have three schools and about 40 coaches. And it usually didn't exceed that. But when I went to Rwanda and the whole country embraced what I was doing, it was like, you know, maybe I'm onto something. So that's when I said, you know what, I, I know this is a really long answer to your question, but that was the no, reason good. why that I wanted to write the book. So the idea from the book came from this trip to Rwanda. Yeah. But what you're saying is, is that this was something that you've enculturated in your schools yeah. long before this. So how did that, how, how did that come about? Where, where did that seismic shift happen in your career? Oh, where you decided, I'm not, I'm not hiring teachers anymore. I'm only hiring coaches. Like, tell me about that. All right. So the first thing I do is I'm going to ask you the same question I ask every single person that works for me. Okay. And, and I, I really like your honest answer. So Daniel, who was the grade school teacher who taught you how to read? This episode is sponsored by grouplessons.com. If you're looking for a group piano method that is easy to implement in your studio or school, look no farther than Piano Express from grouplessons.com. Because unlike most group piano methods, Piano Express allows students to make individual progress within the context of a larger group. And because of the at-home practice tools and gamified curriculum, Students using the Piano Express method make faster progress than the average method book student. And that helps students feel excited, accomplished, and motivated to learn new music. Also, the system is really adaptable. We've got teachers using the system in their home studios, and we have many large commercial studios running our three-room model that allows you to see up to 24 students per hour with just two teachers. So if you'd like to learn more about Piano Express, navigate to grouplessons.com and sign up for a free demo. You'll get to look at the method, our app and teacher guides, and we'll even give you a sneak peek of our implementation plan that has helped hundreds of studios start their group program in just a few weeks. So Daniel, who was the grade school teacher who taught you how to read? Mm. Now I'm going to count on my clock here. I'm, I'm counting the seconds as, as I'm asking you this question. Okay. So I, unfortunately, my mom, cause I was homeschooled. Oh, okay. So I am so yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so you only had one coach. So if yeah. you were asking anybody who went to uh, grammar school there, they would sit there and they would ponder that question. They would look up and they'd probably burnt somebody out by, you know, maybe their 30 second, 60 second mark. But the second question that I ask, and it's a follow-up question is, is who was the name of the favorite, your favorite teacher in grammar school? At which point, they would say, oh, it was Mrs. Smith, it was Mrs. Don, it was Mr. Einstein. So it was all of these different people and they would name it within seconds. And my father, who's a PhD, he's an educator, who's always taught me, Michael, and this is where I get my teaching from, he goes, it's not what you're taught, what you remember, it's how you were treated. Mm. And the second follow-up question is, as I ask this all to anybody that wants to work with me, I'll say, all right, Daniel, could you do me a favor and define a teacher for me? And okay. I'd like just, what's your definition of a teacher? Hmm. A teacher is someone who imparts knowledge to a student. Now define a coach. A coach comes alongside a person and helps them become good at something. So would you rather for your child, a coach or a teacher? Yeah, I'd rather have a coach. And yeah. that was the whole, that was the beginning of it. So yeah. when I started teaching music, and I started teaching at like 15 and a half years old. And that's the, the way I always approach things. That's the only way I knew it, right? So as I opened up my first school, I was, that was basically how I taught my teachers to be coaches. And then it kind of spread over, you know, to a whole 
you know, group of coaches and then two schools, group of coaches, three schools, group of coaches. So I let the person, the teacher or whoever considers themselves a teacher answer that question. Would you rather be a teacher and a coach? And it's immediate. It's I'd rather be a coach anytime. So that was the whole reason why you did it. So uh, that kind of leads me to the second part, which really kind of ties in with what your message is, is building music schools. I feel that the only way you're going to be able to build a successful music school with student retention is if you had coaches and not teachers. So people might argue with that. They might say, well, you got to teach music theory. You got to teach scales. Yeah, you got to teach that, but it's how you, you teach that. And if you're a coach and you're teaching scales and music theory, it's a whole different you know, approach than is if you're teaching it. So you can teach out of a Mel Bay book. You can teach out of any of those books. But if you take something that the child wants to learn, and teach music theory around it, you're going to get a student who's going to be with you for years, not months. So my, my journey was, I was like nine years old. My teacher was like, all right, let's learn Mary Had a Little Lamb. I was like, who's ever inspired to want to learn Mary Had a Little Lamb? <laughs> so I quit. The second time was when I was 13 and this guy comes in and he was a preacher in a in a church and he's like, when you get good enough, you can play at 11 o'clock mass. I'm like, I want to play Led Zeppelin. So I quit. <laughs> My third teacher, who was a coach, said, hey, what's your favorite band? My favorite band is Led Zeppelin. Oh, I love Jimmy Page. What's your favorite song? It's Dazed and Confused. And within seconds, that was the proverbial bug that bit me. So when he asked me those questions, who's my favorite band? What's my favorite song? He got into my world. I wasn't going into his world. He was going into my world. That's what we have to do as coaches is we have to figure out what that world is on a one-to-one level. And that's what coaches do. And that's how yeah. I think my business has grown to a seven-figure business exponentially. You know, I can go from a school that no one's ever heard of, and I know within six months to a year, I'm going to have enough students that this is going to be a successful business because it's how you approach the the teaching approach, which is my coaching approach. Mm, that's fantastic. I think the follow-up question, the natural follow-up to have to this is just to start to talk about that distinction because, yeah. you know... My definition comes from a lot of experience, both in the, or the definition that I gave you when you asked me the question off the cuff. There comes from kind of my philosophy and approach to how I uh, I handle piano students in my studio, and then also kind of on the business coaching side, where I'm working with people and helping them improve their school or studio, grow like those sorts of things. So I definitely have a a model in my head of what a good coach is. I'd just love to dive into what you see those distinctions specifically being. Oh, you know, I think you've great begun question. to define it there, but let's keep going. Yeah, that's a great question. So in my book, I talk about the three things that's the most important thing you, you can do to develop rapport. If you can't develop rapport with a mm. student. You will never have that student for more than a couple of weeks because that student doesn't connect and they're gone. The first thing you got to do is you got to get at eye level. And there's a story that I have in my book that was, so I went in there, we weren't open yet. The store was closed. I locked the door behind me. I started cleaning up and then there was a knock at the door. And as the knock at the door, I, I was startled because we weren't open yet. It was a mom with this five-year-old child. So naturally, I opened the door. How can I help you? Oh, my son, he doesn't know if he wants to play guitar, piano, bass, or drums. Um, maybe he can just check it out. I said, well, you've come to the right place. So jokingly, I sat down on my knees and I said, let me show you around. I'm going to show you all the instruments and we'll play every single one until you figure out what you want to learn. And that was it. So let's call his name James. I took James around all the rooms. And by the time I got to my last room, I got on my knees. I looked James in the eye. I said, 
So James, what's the instrument that you want to play? And he looked at me, he said, I want to play the drums. So the mom starts crying. So Daniel, naturally, when you're a music school <laughs> owner and you listen to somebody who wants to play the drums, it's like, all right, it can't be that bad. Drums are loud, but we can use pillows. We'll use practice pads. We'll figure it out. So the mom was like, no, you don't understand. He's five years old. Those are the first words he's ever said. So mm. I had no idea what that was. I'm not a, a psychiatrist, a therapist. I would never know. But I have a strange feeling. It's because I got on my knees and connected to this child so children are always looking up at people, whether they're their mm. parents or teachers or whoever it is. The authority is always looking up and they're looking down on them and they feel that introverted, they're scared to talk, they don't know how to feel, and they're intimidated. But when I get to their eye level, it's a whole different connection. So in my heart of hearts, I feel like developing that rapport when I got on their level, that's what really connects them. So there are three things I also mentioned in the book. First is focus. If you want to teach anybody how to play anything, you've got to change their focus because if they come into my schools, all of my schools have these motion sensors, which gives them a giant round of applause. So people walk in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. People think they're rock stars. Well, why do you do that? Because when somebody walks into your school, you don't know if they got into a fight with their best friend. They just failed a subject. They cracked their iPhone. They got punished. They're not going out. You don't know. But when they hear that screaming, now, this yeah. is this loud screaming. They, they are celebrated. So that immediately changes their focus. Then it's the language. So what I would do is say something like, we're going to rock and roll. I bet you you're going you're gonna to play so well today, you're going to be teaching me one day. You change the language. So now they're like really psyched. Then it's the physiology. So we get on our knees and we give them a high five and we just change their physiology. If you can change the language focus and physiology of your student, the moment you meet them, you're going to get a connection that you cannot get anywhere else. Whether you're playing like Eddie Van Halen on the guitar or Mozart on the piano, you're not going to get that same connection that you do with a child who sees you like them. So, you know, that's the whole key is, is you want to really get that connection because now they want to learn from you. So if you don't have that connection and you play really well, you could be a prodigy teacher, you know, but when you're a coach... It's not about what you can play. It's about how you connect with your child to get them to want to be playing. So that's the key. So I think if, if all the people listening, if you want to make that quick distinction between a teacher and a coach, use those three techniques as physiology, you know, and that could be just like a handshake or a high five, just to just get them to change their state with their focus. You know, that focus, it could be something like, you know, a, a crowd screaming in the background. And then, you know, it, it's, it's that whole, the physiology thing is the high five. So all these little things that you can do, the language, the focus, the physiology are parts that you can in, intertwine with your very first connection with a student. Because at that point, when they feel that connection, they're going to, they're going to have a desire to learn because they don't want to, they don't want to make you feel bad. They want to do it for you because they want to impress you. They want to make you feel good. It's a crazy experience too, but it works every time. Yeah. A couple thoughts I have about what you're saying there. One, just in the, the realm of business coaching, one of the things I think really made an impact on me with a coach that was hugely influential in my life was with a lot of coaches, I'll put that in air quotes. If, yes. you're, not, if you're not watching, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm air quoting this. A lot of coaches I'd worked before this one particular coach who was meaningful to me, Dave, um, you know, I'd come in, I'd have this problem, they'd listen to me, and then they would just launch into, oh, you need to do this and this, yeah. and here's this thing that I learned, blah, blah, blah. And what, what, fa what not fascinating me, what 
was so meaningful to me with Dave was I would dump all this context on him and then he'd ask a question. I'd answer it. He'd ask another question. Mm -hmm. I'd answer it. He would ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. And then I would kind of discover for myself. I would begin Mm. to see through the questions he was asking. I would begin to see my own thinking laid out on the table in front of me. And I would often self-source my own solutions, which in my book, that's what a good coach does. And what I feel like what you're talking about in those rapport things that you said there, you're helping you're helping someone come come to it on their own as opposed to like cracking open the skull and stuffing knowledge in there. That's exactly you're, right. You're creating an environment which creates the result you're looking for. So I think I think the follow-up question I have to you is that is it possible? Okay, I'm this isn't pushback, but it might be close to pushback. Okay. I don't know. I, I love it. Go ahead, go. <laughs> okay. Is it possible that a quote unquote teacher could also do some of these rapport things? Or would you say that if someone is doing these rapport things that they are actually acting as a coach, even if they are a teacher? That's exactly, yeah, 100% right. So my dad, who's a PhD, doctor of education, taught for 30, 40 years in the public school system, he says he's not a coach. He doesn't believe coaches exist and they're teachers. And I said, dad, you're 100% wrong. I'm writing this book to prove you're wrong. He still, you know, the more I do (laughs) and the more I say and give him examples, like uh, his, his example is, you know, a teacher is in a public school system and they can't connect with a one-on-one student the way a coach can. And I mm. give a lot of examples in the books on how you can do that. But um, he's got that distinction that if it's not one-on-one, it can't possibly be a, a coach. I had, an, I'm fortunate enough to say I've had a lot of teachers in my music, in my schools, my public schools, who were in fact coaches that they didn't know it. And uh, my last chapter, which is chapter seven, my goal was to find one of my teachers who were actually coaches in a teacher's body and explain to them, or her in this case, Mrs. Pettit, how she was in fact a coach thinking she was a teacher all these years. And at the end of my chapter, and I have invited her over and she was like 40, it was like 40 years later. She was invited her over and thank God she was still with us. I invited her over to my house for dinner and um, she was going to a piano teacher. And she said, my piano teacher was 98 years old and he just retired. I loved him, but I got a new one. This new one now, he's teaching me things and he's teaching me different ways to play. And my first teacher would teach me how to read out of a book and I had to look and I have to sight read and I have to play everything note for note. But my other teacher tells me to learn the piece, close my eyes and feel it. And I said, there's your teacher and there's your coach. And I said, Mrs. Pettit, when you were teaching ceramics, in junior high school, you were the type of person that would connect with us on a, on a one-to-one level, even if it was a classroom. And I gave her so many examples. So there are a lot of teachers that don't even know that they're coaches and they're not defined as coaches because of the educational system and because of people like my dad that think teachers can only be teachers, coaches can only be in sports. But there are a lot of teachers that are actually coaches and the teachers that are in the school that are strictly teachers, they don't mesh well with coaches. They don't like the fact that they have rapport with the children. They think that it's, if you have a relationship with a child, it's just, it's not natural. And my, a coach that I've asked that question to, he said, how could it not be natural? If you cannot connect with a child, why would that child want to learn from you? Doesn't that make mm-hmm. sense? A hundred percent. Yeah. In some of the things you said, those three report tricks that you gave, or yes, that you gave earlier, um, what I find interesting about that, I'd like to maybe dig in here a little bit more, is that the these this might be a mindset, this might be a view of the world, 
but it is a view that isn't entirely theoretical or conceptual, mm -hmm. that there are practical outworkings of this mindset in real life, such as some of those specific measurable, observable things that you talked about, like getting down on the child's level, yeah. asking more questions. You talk about the fact that you employ 40 coaches across your three schools. Do you have specific training for your coaches at the schools where you inculcate them with this doctrine, so to speak? Do you, do you give them those practical things that they have to do? I'm curious. Yes. So when we have a coach that comes in, the first and foremost is, is we, I have sixes that you have to follow these and it's all about the child. So um, we kind of interplay all these things in the environment that I that I said as well. So if my coach does not realize that this is what I'm doing, the environment around them does. So they'll hear that sound of the the big crowd roaring up, you know, so they'll see the other coaches. There's always a coach there that's got the most experience that they learn from, who's always the most popular as well. But it's generally when I do this, and, and a lot of the times it's me that inter that not only interview, but train them. If it's not me that trains them, it's some of my head or lead coaches that's been with me for 10, 15 years. And for a reason they've been with me that long, they've taken what I've done and they're able to now interject that with the people. So they're almost like the senior coaches that are in these other schools that leading by example. So I bought a school out in Florida about a year and a half ago and okay. I flew out there and none of them were coaches. So I had to now take my view and tell them how I felt this mm. school is going to have to be run the moment that I signed my name over or they signed the name right. over to me. And I asked them the same exact questions as you, define a teacher, define a coach. So the way your teacher was telling you that they were asking you questions that you figured it out was the exact approach that I had them realize that they were in fact coaches. I can't tell someone they're a coach. They have to realize they're a coach. That's so important. So the way you were brought up with these questions is the same way as I, and I had each one of them define for me what their impression or interpretation was of a teacher and a coach. And coincidentally, four of them uh, came over to me when I took over the school and only one is still with me because I held them accountable for being a coach and they didn't like that. They liked the definition. They understood the definition. But when mm. I held them accountable because that's the way we have to run our school in order to grow, they weren't on the same page. So those are the, those are the difficult conversations that you had. So I had one guy who was a phenomenal drum coach except for that he wasn't a coach. He was a drum teacher. And I said, you would do good at any other school. A school rock franchise would probably eat you up because you're a great teacher, but you're not a coach. And you're not a coach because of A, B, and C. And he understood the reason. It wasn't because he was a, a bad teacher or a bad drummer. Right. He just wasn't part of our, our culture in that mm. if I kept him, other people would start to, to display his type of uh, characteristics as far as coaching. And that wasn't what I was about. So it's really important. You hold them accountable and you make sure that they're on the same page because you're going to have instances that, and you might even reflect on a school and any one of the listeners might reflect on some of the teachers that are in their schools right now. And like uh, Rob's School of Music is a perfect example. He calls his teachers coaches now because he sees exactly mm. what a coach is supposed to be. So a listener might be listening now and say, you know what? I have 14 people working with me and I think that there's two of them that are teachers, but I know the other 12 of them are definitely coaches. If you don't get rid of those two teachers or even try to convert them into coaches, it's going to be a it's going to be a tough obstacle, obstacle to overcome because that's the difference between st student re uh, retention and 
just mm-hmm. building up your, your business. So I think the only way you're going to build a business and to get to that seven figure business, which is not, it's not an easy task. You have to have yeah. a lot of retention. And you know, that's a, that's a strong statement when you say seven figure business, because you need to keep retention in order to build and get to that, you know, seven level, seven figures. So in my opinion, you got to have coaches and you got to train them. And that's got to be a consistent thing. And you got to hold them accountable as well. Interesting. Okay. I want to push in a little even more. Yeah. So, uh, you know, five, 10 minutes ago, you were talking about the rapport Yeah. and that are there other, um, are there other, are there other aspects to this other than the rapport building? Are there other things that you would say distinguish a coach from a teacher in areas other than rapport, or yep. do you feel like it's all rapport? Nope. Teach what they want to learn, not what you want to teach. And that's what everybody says. What's the difference between you and the school of rock? You and rock, bock to rock, whatever. We teach students what they want to learn, not what we want to teach. And that's completely focusing now on that's the so student. And, yeah. and that's my, that, when people ask me, what's the difference? That's our difference. Interesting. Okay. Well, I want to dig into that one. So I can, I can hear collectively the cries of the audience. Um, but wait a second, we're teaching out of this method book. We're oh trying gosh, to, Daniel. you know, we're trying to get kids into, you know, a certain level of skill or ability or whatever. Like, how do you balance this idea of coaching versus uh, a, a progressive path towards skill mastery? This episode is sponsored by BigMusicGames.com. As our listeners know, Brooklyn Music Factory is all about a fun, fluency-first approach to music lessons. And at the foundation of our teaching methods are rhythm, melody, harmony, and songwriting games that challenge students as young as four years old to train their ears and flex that musical mind. Because when you set an intention of gamifying every single lesson, you're gonna find improved attendance, increased play at home, and higher student retention. So we've set up a website just for our listeners so you can start playing today. Go to bigmusicgames.com backslash 7FMS and create your free account. Again, that's bigmusicgames.com backslash the number seven FMS. And if you join today, I'm going to send you a personal invite to join our weekly teacher training call with me and Greggy Bizzle, our chief game designer. Go ahead and put play back into practice with Big Music Games. How do you balance this idea of coaching versus uh, a, a progressive path towards skill mastery. Holy smokes. This is, you're, you're asking amazing questions because this is something that really, um, solidified. Well, it's just the coach. It's the coach in me. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's asking those questions. <laughs> that's exactly right. There was a student I was teaching. Uh, this was in New York and this kid did not want to learn music theory. He didn't want to learn scales. He wanted to focus songwriting and music production. And we did six months of it. This kid was excelling like exponentially, like every lesson was better and better and better. We were recording, we were layering, we were harmonizing, we were songwriting, we were doing so many things with understanding like, you know, how to write a bridge and and all that stuff. Like, and the father came in and the father was a very famous preacher in New York. And he sat at the lesson and he was turning red and he was listening to me. He said, the end of that lesson, he said, Michael, I really appreciate all the work you're doing with my son, but you should be focusing on music theory, on reading music, on you, on, on the books, and you should be doing it based on what everybody else has been doing in, in your field. And I said, with all due respect, you preach 
and I'll teach. And if you don't feel that what I'm doing is enough for your son, then I think that you should find another teacher because I'm a coach. And he didn't say anything. And that conversation ended there. Two or three years later, he was still with me and he became such an exceptional producer and songwriter that he ended up writing for this Christian church in New York, producing all of the albums. He became one of the top in his field for music production, recording and engineering in, in a Christian church. And my very close friend was friends with this preacher because they went to the church and they were at dinner. And somebody said, hey, how's your son doing? And they said, he's doing amazing. He's doing, he's got a music career. He's a producer. He's an engineer. He's songwriting. He's also doing all our church's stuff. At which point the wife turned around and said, you see that Mike Grande was right. And uh, he said, yeah, you're right. So there are people with the mindset where you have to learn based on their concept of learning and education. And that's the problem with our education system. It's like, you can't be a coach. You got to teach. This is the lesson plan. You can't deviate. This is, you know, when I was a history teacher, you couldn't deviate with the history classes because history just doesn't change, Daniel. It doesn't change. So if you follow that and that's what you have to follow, you'll be a great teacher. But if you find out what that child wants to learn, now you've been a become a great coach and you're getting the best out of that child. So not everybody wants to learn music theory. Not everybody wants to learn, you know, scales or chords or inversions. There are kids that want to focus on producing and engineering. So finding the right coach, if he had a different teacher and not a coach, he would not be where he is today. I can confidently say that he would not be where he is at his level today if it had not spent all that time with me. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. Is there, um, and by the way, it mm. takes a lot of, I, I hate to say it takes a lot of balls to go up to a parent who's paying you, by the way, who's a, a very big person in, in the community to say, you preach and I'll teach because you have to be so confident in yourself and what you do that if you're going to have that kind of conversation, you can't back down and say, you're right, here's my Mel Bay book and let's start with page two. That's just not the way it works. So anybody mm. who's listening to this, if you don't have that that confidence and you should have, yeah, you have to have that confidence as a coach, then you're not ready to switch over yet. But until you have that confidence and you're willing to say that maybe your son or daughter, you might need to find somebody else for your son and daughter, if that's how strong you feel, that's a whole different conversation. So to the listeners that are listening out there, it, you know, I'm a Brooklyn guy with a big mouth. If you're yeah. very introverted, <laughs> I, I gotta be honest with you, if you're introverted and people don't like me and he walked out, he hated me for a long yeah. time until he realized what I got out of his son, which was probably the greatest gift I could have gave to his son. So if you don't have that confidence level, it's going to be a difficult conversation that you're going to have. There is a book and I'm, yeah, here it is. Um, by what I consider, not a music coach, but a, a coach's coach by a guy named Steve Chandler. He has a book called Fearless. And in this book, one of the things he says is that the best coaches are fearless people. Yeah. They say the thing that needs to be said. Oh and they my don't, God. Yeah, they don't bring ego to the conversation. What what they're fully invested in is serving the client. In your case, that's serving the student, serving the family, not seeding ground, not, um, right. not giving up what makes you unique, not like, oh, you're so servile that you're a doormat. No, 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 no. You're saying the thing that needs to be said. And I think that's kind of what you're exemplifying there. And so what I'd like to do maybe here is 
give us like a verbal description of what a typical lesson in your school would look like that is student led. How's that going to feel different? Um, and even what could a quote unquote teacher relate to, but then what might make them feel a little challenged as you describe a lesson? Like what is a student led lesson look like? I'll take a, let's just do a regular vocal lesson. We could do anything, but a vocal or piano lesson. So a lot of children a couple of years ago loved Adele and they needed to sing an Adele song, especially new students. And Adele sings in B flat. She's got a very deep voice, great range, but kids, they strain with when they try to sing Adele, they struggle with it. So each one of my schools and each one of my teaching rooms has IMAX with GarageBand. So when a student comes in and says, we want to learn this, whether it's an Adele song or learn how to play Eddie Van Halen or whatever it is, we will take that song and we'll either transpose it or slow it down. So we would transpose Adele to find that comfort level for the student and have the student sing over that key. What that does is the student now is going to be able to sing one of her favorite or his favorite songs and be able to do it successfully by the coach transposing the key so they're able to do it. So within 30 minutes in a world of instant gratification, that child could walk out of that room and say, mom, would you believe I'm singing this song? And here it is on an MP3. When you start mm. produ- producing lessons like that, instead of opening up a folder and showing scales, you are changing the, the whole paradigm of a music lesson. People will you, You're going to be famous because people are going to talk about those lessons and those MP3s and what that child and the level of confidence that child is going to have. People ask me all the time, what do you guys do? Oh, we, we teach... We teach music, yeah, but we teach confidence and self-esteem, but we do it through a music lesson. Another perfect example, we'll have a kid come in and wants to learn how to play Van Halen, who's 10 years old, who can never play guitar. It doesn't even know how to play or even own a pick. So we'll give him a pick, we'll play an open A string, and then what we'll do is we'll put some drums on and we'll play them You Really Got Me by just playing an A note. So I might play on the bass a G to A, G A A G A, and before you know it, within 15 minutes, that kid who has never played or picked up the guitar ever is now playing Eddie Van Halen the way Eddie Van Halen played it on his song, you know, and and, and all of a sudden this kid is like, oh my God, I'm playing the same song that my idol has played. Now, Mm -hmm. the average music teacher will sit there and they'll teach the music theory. They'll write out the notes on the neck. They'll say the E and the F are connected, the B and the C are connected. They'll write out the fretboard. They'll put it in. Then they'll start, they'll, they'll get probably six months out of really no playing until they get to Eddie Van Halen. But with hmm. us, it's so much simple. We're going to throw you Eddie Van Halen and we're going to get you so itching for your next lesson. That's why we sign up trials. There was um, a couple of people say, how do you sign up trials on all these forums? We get, you know, very, a lot of people just don't turn over trials so quickly. It's a high conversion rate is what you're saying. We have a 99% conversion rate. So when people come in and they want to learn how to play Van Halen, their first 30, 30 minutes, they're playing it. They can't wait to come back to the next lesson. They always sign up. So it's not what you're charging. It's what you're getting out of that student. And when a parent is there, they're sitting in the corner and they're watching this transformation from a child who has never picked up an instrument to now picking it up and playing it. And all of a sudden they're playing their favorite song. It's not like, come on, it's time to practice. Come on, it's time to go to your lesson. It's mom, when are we going to our lesson? When am I going to see Mike again? When am I going to learn my next song? When can we go back to the school? 
That's what we get. You get that for your music school, you'll get to a seven-figure income a lot quicker than you're doing it now if you're a teacher. Yeah, and I just want to jump in here. I, I want to keep this going, but I want to make a note for everyone who's listening. If you go back and listen to episode 80, I did an episode called Five Problems with Your Trial Lessons. What you're talking, what Mike is talking about here is another example of how to elevate those trial lessons into something that's exciting. And a word I used in that episode was an experience. You create yes. experience for that child. If you can hear the energy in Mike's voice, you can also imagine the energy the child is walking out of that room with when, when they have an experience like that. It is uncommon. People don't get to feel those emotions very often in daily life. Most kids are bored or they're tired out from school or they're mindlessly scrolling YouTube. They don't get to ex have an experience like that. Most humans don't get to have an experience like that. So if you can provide that from someone, that's why, you know, that's why Mike's, you know, got the 99% sign up rate. And it's why in my own studio, and someone actually mentioned this to me recently, and I'm going to kick it back over to you in a second here, Mike. But I, on that podcast, I said, I did not lose a trial lesson in 10 years unless I rejected the student. Right. And that didn't happen very often. And someone came to me and said, or a client of mine said, it was really 10 years. I was like, yes, it really was. I didn't, I never lost trials. And it's, you know, I'm not, I didn't do what Mike here is doing, but I had my own version of creating that experience. Um, so let me ask you another question uh, about, about, you know, this, this trial lesson experience kind of going into the lessons. Obviously they've had the trial. They want to come back for the next. You know, if <laughs> those who listen to the podcast know I'm Mr. Systems, I'm always thinking, about how do I systematize things? Right. Are there some common songs that you would have in place, like ones that 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 you could um, deploy in those trials or those early lessons with kids as they're first beginning to learn? You know, on, on the various disciplines in the school, or are the are the the coaches truly like? doing custom songs for every kid that comes in. I, I'm trying to see if there is some systematic, if there's a systematic nature to some of this. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. So sometimes kids don't even know what songs, their parents say it's time mm. to learn some music. So that's when you go back to Mary Had a Little Lamb, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I do not know a single person who was ever inspired to learn any instrument by listening to Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Sure. So our lessons that come in for somebody who's, and this is going to anybody that has students that don't even know what they want to learn yet. So sure. but we, we yeah. do have that. So what I do is colorized learning for kids that are nine and under. Colorized learning is something I come up with about a decade ago. And when you take the seven letters of music and the seven colors of the rainbow and you assign a color of the rainbow with a note. So the color red is equivalent to the letter C or the C note. So we teach kids from nine and under how to look at colors and identify notes and sing. And they be, you know, they're able to now become, you know, they, they listen to it, they could sing, they have perfect pitch. So what we do is we take the crayons, and this is a trial lesson of a kid who never ever wanted to learn a song, doesn't even know music or whatever. So what we do is we take them the crayons, we show that to them. Then we have this exercise where they can actually fill in when they go home, they take the crayons home and with the crayons, they fill in the colors. But the first song that we teach them is Love Me Tender by Elvis Presley. And the parents love it because everybody loves Elvis, but it's all done in color. So the children get to color Love Me Tender while they're watching the notes and reading the notes and humming the notes to the colors of the rainbow. So that's one of the fallbacks that we do for piano and voice students. It's pretty simple. So we'll take that 
with with Love Me Tender instead of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star because parents can help too with the children because a lot of people know that song as well. And when they see that, sometimes the parents kind of want to get in and start playing the piano with the child because they want to learn how to play Love Me Tender too. But it's a different approach to teaching is that you you take something like the colors and you associate that with music. So you kind of tie in something that they're very familiar with, especially if they're in a, in, in a position where they're not familiar with any particular song. There's songs yeah. like that. But you know, any, any kid that comes in who does know a song, if it's a song that we're not going to be prepared to teach, we will simplify the heck out of it if we have mm. to and slow the drums down because we have GarageBand. We can transpose and slow those drums down so they can play their favorite song within the first 30 minutes. That's our goal. Okay. Um, I think the, the reasoning behind my question was this could feel a little bit out of reach for some people. They could hear this and think, oh my word, I'm not going to be writing custom music every single day of the year. But to hear you know, that there is a systematic nature behind it, I think that might help it to feel more in reach. I think I have like one other question and, and you can take this wherever you want. Sure. Um, if someone wanted to start to go down this road, what steps, what are the beginning steps that you would give them? And, and I'm going to maybe even suggest number one would just be to check your book out. Uh, you know, having looked through it myself, you sent me an advanced copy of it. It's, I think it's available about right now. It's being published late September. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think if retention's on your mind, if creating experience is on your mind, uh, anything in our industry that, that illuminates that or dwells on that, and there's not much out there, if there's anything that comes out, I would just recommend you got to read that. So maybe step one, check out the book. But what other steps would you tell an, another music school owner or even an individual private teacher who's teaching piano or guitar or drums or voice? What are the steps to go down this road to become a coach? The, this is a great question. And I would start by looking at yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? And there is going to be somebody in your life that has given you this gift that you probably don't know what it was or who it was. But when you look inside that, that mirror and you see, oh my God, it was, so for me, it was this guy, Kenny Lee, who taught me how to become a great guitar player, to become a great coach. It was that person. What were the characteristics of that person that got me so passionate about wanting to play? And if you could figure that out, because everybody's different, and you could figure out why you are where you are right now, it's likely because you had a coach. And what are those attributes that those coaches used for you to get you so passionate about hmm. what you do? As soon as you can figure that out, you will become an amazing coach. It's so simple, but nobody looks and says, like, Daniel, you're probably a piano teacher. Why? So let's figure it out with you. What was the reason hmm. you became a piano teacher? I had the skill. Um, and if we're going to get down to it, it's something I went to college thinking, I'm good at this. Uh, I went to college kind of without a plan. But, but before that, you, no, no, we're talking about when you started to play piano. Let's go even further. What got, oh, you, to, what got you to fall oh, in love sure. with piano? My, I saw my mom playing when I was very, very young. Gotcha. And how did that make you feel? Uh, you know, I was like three, so that that's a ways back there, from Mike. What you, from uh, what you remember. <laughs> right. I think there was a natural curiosity there because that carried through my childhood. Right. So a lot of times when parents have, when children have parents and parents have children that and their parents play, they make it where they have to play and they just have to practice. And those kids hate 
hate playing the instrument, but your mom mm. developed somebody or something like into you that made you love and become passionate about it. So she mm. wasn't the teacher. She was the coach. If she was a teacher, she would sit there very, very strict and say, make sure your knuckles are set up right. Make sure your posture is right. Make sure you play with your right hand, your left hand. Make sure you learn how to read. What was it that your mom did to you when she was teaching you how to play that you fell in love with it because if she sat there with a ruler and started hitting you with your fingers, you probably wouldn't be a piano player right now. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, there, to your point that you make in the book, people don't remember what you teach and they remember how you make them feel. Mm. Uh, my mom, I loved having my mom come into the living room and stand behind me and she would stand right behind me and I would use her stomach as a headrest and I would like lean back into her and I'd play my song for her. And she was always, you know, very gracious, whether it was good performance, bad performance, she was very gracious about it. And she encouraged me, you know, um, complimented me a lot. I did a lot of public performance when I was young, starting at age eight. And she was always very supportive of that. Um, she is more of a strict mom. So, you know, there was a fair amount <laughs> of, you know, like, get in there, you're doing this, you're practicing more, like that sort of thing. But, you know, there was also that sweetness too that I can remember. That outweighs the strict yeah. part of being a teacher, yeah. right? So yeah. your mom was a teacher and a coach. So she too. So I, I would say that she's probably one of your biggest influences and oh, you no want to be like your mom, you know? So that's that's a perfect example. So the people who are listening to this podcast and say, how could I have that same experience is, well, just think about your experience and what made you fall in love with it. And mine was just sitting in the basement with this guy, Kenny Lee, and him showing me the harmonics to Dazed and Confused. And that was it. From that day on, it was like eight to 10 to 12 hours every day because he he got inside my world for the first time. Somebody was able to penetrate that. Your mom got inside your world somehow. So if you can figure out how to get inside the world of each one of your students, then you're on your way to that seven-figure income for sure. Mm. And I'll just say again, having looked through the book, that there within the book itself, there is a lot of these practicalities that he's talking about, about how to become that for the student. So again, I just think so smart to avail yourself of these things because there's a lot in our industry, and I'm not certainly not bad mouthing this. There's a lot in our industry about how to teach this concept better. Yeah. There's a lot in our industry that's very... Um, uh, egg-headed, you know, like that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. There is not a lot. And, and honestly, frankly, even the last couple of years, there's an explosion of business coaches telling you how to do this marketing thing yeah. and that marketing thing. I know I'm even guilty of putting out a lot of material like that. There is not a lot about how to create experiences that do what he's talking about here. So Mike, maybe to wrap, is there is there anything you'd like to put out there, say right now, um, highlight, that you kind of wished, oh, I wish Daniel had asked me this question. Is there anything like maybe like an ending thought or, or one other thing that you want to throw in here? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. The, the one thing I think that's most important is that there's the O's. At the, I mentioned this, um, the O's is one thing. There's, o, there's two O's. There's obstacles and there is opportunities. So um, what coaches feel that there's more opportunities than there are obstacles. You're always going to connect with an obstacle. The question is, is that an obstacle towards an opportunity or is it an obstacle to quit? 
I've always been to the obstacle where it's my opportunity to figure out how I can pivot. That's that's incredibly important. But the the final chapter of my book was the most important that I want to leave everybody with. And I think that's if if we can just for one moment, if you're listening to this podcast right now, stop what you're doing, pull up your phone and thank the coaches that made that effect and made that difference in your life. Because when you go on Facebook and your teacher from elementary school is, is just passed away and you see a laundry list of all of the people who really gave a shit about this guy, who really how he affected their life. My, there was uh, uh, Mr. Kaplan, one of my old art teachers. There are people who became artists because of Mr. Kaplan who will never know this because he passed away. He's not going to see the hundreds, if not thousands of lives that he's touched. All I'm asking is that anybody that reads this book or listens to this podcast to spend one minute of your time, drop everything, pick up your phone and thank the coach that made a difference in your life hmm. because that's what coaches live for. They live for legacy. They don't care about the money, the material things. They just are so grateful that you, the student, has chosen them to be the coach. And that just mm. one thank you goes a long way to a coach. Don't wait till it's too late. Do it now. And even if, if it's like, you know, somebody that you haven't spoke to in 10 years, that's the best time because they know that you're still remembering them. You wouldn't be there for them. And that's so important. So if there's any takeaway from this podcast, just thank the people that have touched you the most. And those coaches are those people. Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.